Hey, it's your host, Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to collective healing, ecological regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. As a community-powered show made possible by listeners like you, we do need your direct support to be able to continue the show and keep exploring a lot of these perspectives often sidelined by mainstream media. So if you value these conversations, you can reciprocate support for us starting from a gift of $2 at greendreamer.com support. Also, we just launched our fundraising Green Dreamer Planners. They include the major socio-ecological awareness dates, gratitude sections, inspirational quotes from our past guests, weekly suggested grounding actions, and more. And they're made with recycled paper, bound by recycled craft paper, and protected by optional recycled cotton book cloths. But more importantly, I really designed them intentionally to support our mental well-being. So if and only if you do make good use of physical planners, I would love for you to check them out at greendreamer.com planners. And now on to today's episode, where we're speaking with Dr. Emma Bedore Highland. Whenever I would begin these conversations with people who make or advocate for the use of these tools, they would say that they want to help people. They know that there's a mental health care crisis. They think that their tools can really make a difference. But at the same time, when it came to actually getting these tools into the hands of people who might benefit from them, that's kind of where a lot of what they said fell apart because they weren't actively trying to do that. Dr. Highland is a feminist scholar focused on communication studies. She brings an intersectional approach to the analyses of the social and cultural effects of media and new technologies, and her work explores the questions of what it means to live well, to be happy, and to pursue health. Today, we are discussing her book, Therapy Tech, which looks at the digital transformation of mental health care. And we begin here as she shares about her aha moment that led her to see that digital mental health technologies were not what they were hyped up to be. So there I was, I was at the University of Minnesota learning about research ethics, mental health and illness, still pursuing my interest in media and traditional media, film, TV, new media technologies. When I learned about a growing field of digital health technologies that were smartphone applications. And I learned that they claimed to improve the mental health of their users. And I was really optimistic and excited about them. I thought it would be a great way to be able to study media and technology and have an object of inquiry where the outcome should be great, where people who are able to access and use these tools have improved mental health outcomes. So like I said, I was really optimistic about this. I attended the American Telemedicine Association's conference that year, which took place in Minneapolis. I believe this was 2015, the summer. I was still doing my graduate coursework. And as I attended, I sort of had this epiphany or this realization that whereas I was very much motivated in mental health technologies because I wanted to increase access to them for communities, people who continue to have lower, poor access to mental health care and resources in general, telemedicine itself is fundamentally an industry and a business. So although my drive for being there was based upon wanting to improve equity and accessibility of these tools, it really is at the end of the day an industry focused upon making money and showing shareholders that it's profitable. So there was this dialectic and this tension between wanting to do good for people and still needing to show that they're 
is economic legitimacy to this field as something that people can invest in and have new types of work related to. So it's not to say that people who create these technologies or advocate for their use aren't thinking about increasing access in the way that I am. But a lot of the time in the research that I've done, all of the case studies I talk about in the book, we see that that becomes secondary to the desire for profitability, showing shareholders that there is utility in investing in these technologies. So I had this sort of pivotal paradigmatic shift in my own thinking because the more I started to learn and research and look into various types of mental health technologies, whether it was smartphone apps or therapeutic AI and chatbots, I started to see cracks and false promises and what they said that they were going to offer to people, which is that improvement in mental healthiness and instead more so being driven by economic imperatives and desires. Mm. There's so much in what you just shared. I really appreciate it and look forward to diving deeper into the details. Before we get into that, I think it may be helpful for us to first paint a picture for our listeners of the backdrop of what has been happening in regards to our collective mental and psychological health. And you touched on this, but for the purposes of this conversation, we're focusing on mental health. But of course, mental health can't really be separated from our greater physical and more holistic states of well-being. But just to start us off here, what are some concerning trends that we know of that make up this mental health crisis that we're in? And what do we know or not know about the key drivers behind them? Sure. That's a really great question. So data that we do have from the likes of Mental Health America, the CDC, lots of nonprofits, Pew Research Center, all of that painted a picture prior to the COVID pandemic of the fact that we were experiencing a mental health care crisis. And the reasons for this crisis were multifold. They were related to um, the inaccessibility of mental health care services from qualified, competent, trained mental health professionals, the unaffordability of care for persons who both have insurance and also those who don't, and the continuing stigmatization of seeking and receiving mental health care services. There's also research about other elements, other barriers to accessing and receiving Receiving mental health care, for example, a really fascinating study about people who have white sounding names and voices are more likely to be accepted as new patients for practitioners, uh, mental health care practitioners, than people without white sounding names, for example. So we even see how the biases and prejudices of practitioners themselves can play a, a important role in preventing people who are people of color and continue to receive lesser levels of mental health care than their white counterparts today in ways that we don't even often conceptualize. So again, that was prior to the onset of the COVID pandemic. The research that has been gathered now, the pandemic is not over yet, although we often sort of talk as though it is, continues to show us that we are seeing higher levels of mental distress than any other time in history, especially anxiety and depression up by, gosh, I believe Mental Health America has a screener that it offers people to use and they can access online just by Googling it. And it's something like there's a 90% increase, I believe, in levels of anxiety amongst the American population compared to prior to the COVID pandemic. So one of the other important issues that this brings up is whether or not people are experiencing more and more anxiety and depression and other mental disorders and illnesses, or whether we are tending to overly medicalize mental states today. Now, we talk about medicalization a lot in bioethics and medical humanities, health humanities, research and scholarship, and that is the tendency to take 
aspects of our lives, which historically we wouldn't conceptualize through medical frameworks, but instead we take them and we conceptualize them as being treatable. So a really great example of this would be shyness. Shyness is something that a lot of people experience, but increasingly we see diagnoses of social anxiety, anxiety in general. And some people would say that we over-medicalize shyness and turn it into something that is treated with medical interventions when it's not always necessary. So as we see these increasing rates in diagnoses of especially depression and anxiety during and before the COVID pandemic, it's just important that we also keep in mind that medicalization is something we should be aware of. And my goal here is not to say that we should not be providing diagnoses when they are helpful. It's just to also be aware of the potentiality for medicalization to play a role in those rates of increasing diagnoses too. Yeah. So definitely there's nuance here in that perhaps on the one hand, we're medicalizing quote unquote issues that traditionally were not viewed as issues needing to be treated per se or fixed. And then on the other hand, we do know that there is an evident increase in mental conditions like anxiety, depression. I know there's also an increasing loneliness epidemic as well, which I'm sure feeds into other forms of mental health crises. And I can't imagine that these things can be separated from the other trends of, for example, our increasing economic disparity, our worsening climate crisis, and so forth. Although I don't know if there would ever be a sort of causational study to show that because it's happening at a large scale. So I don't know if you have any insights on that. Absolutely. I'm not aware of any large scale studies like you've described, but our mental health should, in my perspective, and I share this with other folks as well, it's not just about are you diagnosed with a particularized disorder or not. I like to think about mental health in terms of overall healthiness and our ability to pursue healthiness. And we know that there is a relationship between happiness and healthiness. So even if something is subclinical, if we are experiencing distress of any kind, whether it is, for example, due to the stress related to climate change, instabilities that come from that, unemployment, especially during the pandemic, it's all very very much interconnected. I think that more of us are thinking about the relationships between mental health and overall wellness and happiness due to the pandemic, but certainly these are interconnected dimensions of how we come to experience the world. So they are very much related to our overall mental health. Going into therapy tech, you begin by shining a light on how people tend to fetishize novel technologies as potential solutions to addressing or alleviating our mental health crisis. So what are some examples of the health technologies that have been hyped up and popularized? And what do you think it is that leads us to have this tendency to focus on techno fixes? That's such a great question. So in preparation for this interview, I went back and I looked at a number of the technologies discussed in the book because I conclude the book by saying that by the time somebody reads it, it's possible that not all of the tools and technologies even exist anymore or the ways that they exist are vastly different. But some of the technologies that continue to be discussed, popularized by media today include Wobot, which is one of the therapeutic artificially intelligent chatbots that I discuss in the book. 
Wobot is wildly popular, very successful. I saw that they just raised funds, so Wobot Inc. raised the funds to start a program, especially for women with postpartum depression. So there are new and innovative ways that that sort of technology is being used. There still are so many types of smartphone applications that we can download either for free or at very minimal low cost through the iTunes and Google Play stores, I believe. There's somewhere between 10,000 and 20,000 of these, but it's hard to get an exact figure because they go on and off the market. They're categorized in different ways. Some of them are considered for health and lifestyle, and some are categorized under fitness. Mm. (laughs) These technologies, they are not slowing down. So in the book, I tried to paint a broad picture of all of the different types of tools that really are out there. So I begin the book by discussing a ingestible an ingestible digital therapeutic, which is called Abilify My Site, which oh, intends to track whether persons prescribed Abilify largely for schizophrenia are taking their medicines. But the, the case studies also discuss the smartphone applications. They discuss the therapeutic chatbots and AI. Psychosurveillance is a whole chapter about the ways that social media platforms especially are designed to encourage us to monitor the mental healthiness and mental states of others whom we know, and also how there are other opportunities for us to volunteer explicitly on platforms to monitor others' mental healthiness and their mental states. I also looked into Seven Cups of Tea, which I discussed in the book, and I saw that it's still growing as a platform in popularity. You know, a lot of these tools, due to the pandemic, they've really seen a boom. So, Media coverage, the statistics say that more and more people are turning to online therapy, which is, of course, not a bad thing. And I do discuss telemental health care or screen-based therapy in the final chapter of my book. I just, like every other technology that I discuss, I, I emphasize the need to acknowledge that problems come when we rely solely upon technological infrastructure to make mental health care services possible because not everybody can access that infrastructure in the first place. Now, I'm not sure I answered your second question. Oh, just <laughs> if you have ideas on what it is that leads us to have a tendency to focus on techno fixes. I think that our tendency to think that technological fixes or solutions are possible is largely due to our culture of individuation in the United States and Western countries in general. Theoretically, at the beginning of my book, I talk about a framework called neoliberalism, which borrows heavily from the work of Michel Foucault. And the way that I describe it and articulate it and use it to make my arguments about these technologies is that we see a diminishment of widely accessible resources. And instead, we start to turn towards ourselves and we're told that we are competent and able and empowered to take care of ourselves effectively if provided with necessary tools. So for example, throughout the pandemic, we saw a lot of public health clinics shuttering. And instead, in their place, we see increased emphasis upon using technologies like these smartphone applications, telemental healthcare services, things which we assume that most of the population can use and access instead of having support mechanisms out in our communities or easily accessible, reachable mental health care professionals. A key point you share is that techno-solutionism disregards the reality that racism, sexism, classism, and other discriminatory belief systems contributed to the mental health care crisis in the first place. And to this point, some may ask, you know, does digitizing mental health care and advancing technologically driven solutions help make this form of care and relief more accessible and democratized? So for example, 
people who can't afford working one-on-one with a therapist might be able to access digital tools that aim to provide that type of support in a different, definitely more limited way, but to a broader population. So in essence, could it help to minimize the disparities of healthcare or has the result largely been the opposite in that they tend to perpetuate or even worsen these inequities? That's a really great question. And there are two elements to the response that I'm going to give. So on the one hand, we do tend to think that technologies can democratize access and resources because unlike people, we conceptualize them as unbiased and apolitical and acultural. So whereas, as I mentioned earlier, perhaps a psychologist might be less willing to take on a client of color who has a black sounding name, the research tells us, than a potential client with a white sounding name. We imagine that AI or an algorithm wouldn't care about something like that. But the problem is that we have enough research to show us that technologies are not apolitical, acultural, or value neutral. And instead, technologies do reflect the biases of the people who make them. So even if they are unintentionally embedded within technologies, they are often there nonetheless. So when it comes to making healthcare decisions or matters of mental health, it becomes really important that we are able to be reflexive about the limits and capabilities of AI and algorithms and other technologies, which we might think or ideally hope can do a better job than us, the imperfect people, but they really can't. So this dimension of technologies, which I conceptualize as falling within this umbrella framework of discriminatory technologies, owes a lot to other scholars such as Simone Brown, who writes about prototypical whiteness. Um, She emphasizes that The typical body, when we create technologies, any user, we assume that that body is going to be white. Also, Sophia Noble, who wrote the book Algorithms of Oppression, came up with this framework called technological redlining, and she emphasizes the ways that search tools like Google's algorithm have a sociocultural effect where they perpetuate negative race and gender-based stereotypes. And my work also owes a lot to the scholarship of Ruha Benjamin, who writes a lot about discriminatory technologies, whether they are medical or scientific technologies or technologies that we use in our everyday lives. So a great example from her scholarship would be the ways that even park benches can be discriminatory. If, for example, you have a park bench with armrests in the middle of it, it discriminates against people who are potentially unhoused or homeless because it tries to dissuade them from laying down there. Mm -hmm. So these discriminatory technologies don't just exist in the context of medicine and mental healthiness. They're part of our everyday normative lives and experiences too. Now, the other thing that I wanted to make sure I mentioned in response to your question is that when I discussed with interviewees for the book the ways that they conceptualize the demographics of people who use mental health technologies, they hadn't put much thought into it. Mm. My interpretation of what they told me is that they just are acting upon this normalized belief in prototypical whiteness, even though they're not doing it intentionally. They just sort of imagine users as like them. And the people who I spoke to largely were white men. And so when I asked questions, which were a little bit more difficult to ask, such as, what do you know about the demographics of the users of your tools how do you conceptualize marketing to other populations? The responses that I got were largely surprising because it wasn't so much that they wanted to 
market their tools, advertise them, get the hands in people who were more diverse than the power users who were largely white and young and female, it turns out. They just wanted to be able to market more effectively to the same populations over and over. So this is where that problem between wanting to help people, but also wanting to be financially stable and make money and be profitable becomes really apparent. Because whenever I would begin these conversations with people who make or advocate for the use of these tools, they would say that they want to help people. They know that there's a mental health care crisis. They think that their tools can really make a difference. But at the same time, when it came to actually getting these tools into the hands of people who might benefit from them, That's kind of where a lot of what they said fell apart because they weren't actively trying to do that. And I also want to state that I did notice after the book was written, I went back and looked at a lot of the technologies which I analyzed for the book and particularly smartphone applications and guided meditations. One of the things that I mentioned in the book is that they are largely voices of white sounding women. And I will say that there are increasingly smartphone applications that use guided meditations in other languages with more diverse sounding voices. So we are seeing some changes there, which is a good thing. So with all this in mind, you've really reframed the question from how we can create technologies that can address our mental health crisis to what these technologies reveal about our beliefs and practices related to the self, medicine, and culture. What revelations had you made with this perspective shift? And how do we situate these critiques within the broader economic and political system that may have incentivized the field of mental health care to advance and unfold in these ways? That's such a great question. And even now, with the book having been written, and I've been (laughs) working on this research for years and years, I often ask myself, what do we do next? Because that shift that you've mentioned, that idea that we have to situate everything related to digital health industries within broader scale economic frameworks and cultures and behaviors and patterns which have far predated the emergence of these industries and technologies, that presents a problem because how can we reconcile the demands of capitalism with wanting to ensure that people have access to adequate or better than adequate high quality mental health care resources when they are experiencing any level of distress. Because again, we have all of this data that tells us that regardless of the high levels of anxiety or depression we're seeing, no matter whether it's due to over-medicalization or whether we truly are living in a world where people are increasingly having experiences with mental distress, we still want people to be able to flourish and we still want people to be healthy and happy. So again, I feel like I don't have great answers, but in the conclusion for my book, I do emphasize that I think that rather than direct immense resources towards novel technologies, saying that you can have a doctor in your pocket on demand if you have a smartphone application that claims to improve mental healthiness, we need to take a step back and really invest those resources and that time and that energy in training qualified human mental health care professionals who have a humanistic approach to the work that they do where they are aware that there continue to be disparities between white folks and people of color when it comes to accessing and utilizing mental health care resources. And while we can't necessarily eliminate technologies as accompaniments to receiving quality mental health care services, 
they should be part of a spectrum of care and they shouldn't ever really be the end all be all end all of care itself. If care is predicated upon access to technologies and technological infrastructure, then we do have to take an even greater step back and make sure that everybody in our community, our world, our global world too, has access to things like the internet and broadband internet. Because if we're going to make technological accessibility a prerequisite to mental health care services, then all we end up doing is widening the disparity between who has access to care and who does not. So unfortunately, I don't have any great answers and I wish I do, but I do believe that if we are more reflexive about the role of technology in our lives and the unrealistic expectations we have of technologies and the problematic assumptions that we have about techno-solutionism or techno-fixes, that we can redirect resources in ways that will make positive differences. Mm. I really see a lot of common threads between these misguided or limiting approaches to mental health care and the techno solutions that get a lot of hype and attention as ways to address our climate crisis, both Mm -hmm. of which tend to individualize the problems like the concept of carbon footprints leading to people fixating on lifestyle changes, which do help but ultimately don't lead to the systemic shifts that can transform the underlying conditions that led to the essentialness of the fossil fuel economy, which a lot of our lifestyles have been locked into. And so I wonder if it's just part of our culture of individualism and also the neoliberal influences that lead to a lot of these sort of innovative incrementalist fixes that only address the symptoms of the crises in various ways, but none that are able to really reach and fundamentally get to the roots of what created the problems to begin with. Yes, I would absolutely agree. That's a really great articulation of the broader scale problem that is happening and how mental health, mental illness, mental distress, mental disorder, it's all just part of this culture where we emphasize that individuation of responsibility. Just like we say, you start to carry your metal straw around at and tell the restaurant that you don't want a plastic straw will make a difference. Yes, it does make a slight difference, but what we really need are large-scale solutions and large-scale support from communities and organizations that are bigger than just one person. And so it is the same thing in a lot of ways with these mental health care solutions or the purported solutions saying that rather than have access to a larger scale system where we do things like provide mental health care resources for people who need them or desire them, instead you can just on your own download this app. Like you pay your smartphone bill every month. So just pay $2 a month for a subscription to an app, which some people might believe will decrease your overall anxiety or stress levels. So let's not do anything to address the root of your anxiety or the stress or how you feel like your quality of life is diminished. Let's instead just use a technology to put the onus on you to come up with your own solution rather than decreasing the burdens, decreasing overwork, decreasing anxiety producing things that we have to do in our everyday lives. Let's just put the onus on you as an individual. And this really is where theoretically 
I use neoliberalism in the book because what it does emphasize is that individuation of responsibility. Again, rather than having access to large-scale support mechanisms, we are told that we are empowered. We have the technologies and the knowledge to take care of ourselves effectively. So why would we want to be a drain on large resources? We, we don't want to be a drain. We want to show our cognizance of social responsibility and care for ourselves effectively. So what we end up doing is valuing our own individualized interventions and this idea that we can care for ourselves effectively. But at the same time, it perpetuates this myth that those who can't do so, those who whose needs aren't satisfied with an app or by talking to an AI chatbot, there is something wrong with them. Because if they can't fix themselves using these tools at their disposal, they're not like us. So even culturally, in terms of our beliefs about ourselves and each other, these technologies do perpetuate this gap between those who can self-care effectively and those who can't. And we tend to see those who cannot, who need more resources and more help as beneath us. Yeah, there's just, you can find this pattern across so many parts of our society, including a lot of the increase in diet-related illnesses where people are told they just need to be more educated about what choices to make. And that completely disregards the idea that a lot of communities don't even have access to fresh foods. And I know, as you mentioned earlier, you've also looked at some of the AI doctors on demand. And I hesitate to call these things futuristic because that is not a vision of a future I personally want to hold. <laughs> but I think there is a place for technology, though I worry about technologies replacing humans across the front lines of healthcare. Because mm -hmm. even with the statistics and disparities aside, I don't even know how to articulate this properly, but it just feels like it loses a key essence of what care even means. Because what if a part of the healthcare and healing process for people is simply being in the presence of someone who, who we know are listening deeply, who see us as full humans, who we can build relationships based on mutual care and empathy. And there may not ever be data to illustrate these points because it's kind of an embodied living feeling. But I would be curious to hear if you've had a chance to explore what it means for our humanity to be digitizing and robotizing care. That is a really important point. And what I will say is that I do know there's quite a bit of time and energy and financial resources all being put toward trying to improve robots and artificial intelligence. You've probably heard of examples of these tools that are given to elderly people to help address their loneliness. And so we're constantly, it's the same problem mm -hmm. that I talk about in my book. We think that rather than think about people as a resource, that maybe we need to direct time and energy to recruiting to provide care for other beings, that technologies can replace us in so many of these ways. So increasingly, we see uh, publications and research trials where elderly folks are presented with tactile robots that they can pet, and they're supposed to improve their feelings of loneliness, their feelings of social isolation. And it's true, they absolutely have been shown in these trials to improve those feelings for them. But again, at what cost? Because it, 
if we believe that there are technological solutions, whether it's AI that we can converse with instead of talking to other people and having those human connections, or it's tactile robots that we can pet as if they are our pets with which we could have human animal connections, what is the overall cost of that? And I too, like you, am concerned about what it means to rely upon non-humans for human connections or to have our human need for connection to be satisfied by non-humans. Especially during the COVID pandemic, so many of us have realized that in order to feel like we are living and leading fulfilling and meaningful lives, we do need human connection. So even though we increasingly, many of us have technologies that make it more possible for us to connect with others, we continue to feel socially isolated and lonely. Even though we can log on our social media and see what other people are doing at all times of day and night, and we can text and we can video chat, but there still is nothing that replaces human to human real contact. So I am like you bothered when I see that increasingly medical professions are turning towards AI of various forms to do things like triage patients or try to have conversations with potential patients on phones to figure out what it is that they need from an actual human medical provider before they're allowed to make an appointment. Or if you go onto a healthcare company's uh, website or platform, you might be able to engage with a chatbot and tell it what is going on in your life. So there are a lot of ways that we are increasingly seeing the turn towards AI. And I don't think for the most part at this point, medical professionals want AI to ever take their place in any way, shape, or form. Instead, those who are accepting of AI being part of their work flows in the workplace, see it as able to augment and improve what they can do. For example, maybe look over patient medical records and see if maybe they missed something when they diagnosed somebody, they missed something in their medical history. But that is for the folks who are accepting of different types of AI in the workplace in medical fields. There are some people who are adamantly opposed to using technologies. They really want care to be delivered solely by humans. They are more fearful about the repercussions of relying upon AI and robots and other technologies. But due to costs, again, a lot of the time it is more affordable for companies to use AI rather than hire people to do things like triage patients or see what perspective patients need from them as medical professionals. So I don't see AI as going away anytime soon from medicine and various medical fields and specialties. And I think we just need to be cognizant of if it is actually helping us and making clinicians and practitioners workflows more effective and making it possible for them themselves to interact with and see more patients than they would have been able to otherwise, or whether, again, these technologies are creating new problems that were unintended and unforeseen, and then we need to deal with the repercussions of them. So we have to be cognizant of all of these potential questions and problems. Yeah. And another concern you have with the development of healthcare techno-solutionism, if left unchecked, is that they will result in intensified forms of psychosurveillance. So Mm -hmm. how might this play out? And because psychosurveillance feels more abstract in their actual impact on everyday people, what sorts of issues should we be aware of there? Yeah. Thank you for bringing psychosurveillance up because when I 
first started discussing it in the book, I did so in terms of one of Facebook's algorithms that came out a few years ago. And when it was released, it was heralded. People really praised Facebook for the innovation which it offered, which was to scan every status update, every post that people make on Facebook and see if there seemed to be any trigger words, keywords, or responses from other Facebook users to flag it as potentially indicative of that user having intent to self-harm or to harm others. So when I say psychosurveillance, it's a combination of surveillance practices, but also that which is psychological or related to the psi disciplines. Another framework which comes from cultural studies too. And so Psychosurveillance really takes us beyond just Facebook's algorithm. There are also platforms which are predicated solely upon providing psychosurveillance services as volunteers. In the book, I discuss two platforms in particular. One is called Seven Cups of Tea, and it's a platform where you can either go on as a listener and be trained for about 10 minutes, 20 minutes of your time to provide empathetic listening to people who are experiencing a whole spectrum of either diagnosed mental disorders, subclinical mental distress, or just want to chat. And then I also discussed a text platform called Crisis Text Sign, which also still exists today, and how both platforms ask for these volunteers to do so, to monitor the mental healthiness, um, engage, be reflexive, be thoughtful and empathetic listeners back to the people who are looking for a listening ear without paying for the services of a mental health professional. And that could be for a variety of reasons. It could be because they are dealing with a trauma that is very recent, or it could be that they don't have financial resources to pay for some somebody who's a qualified and licensed mental health care professional to engage with them. But I conclude the book by also talking about my fears for psychosurveillance in the future, particularly in the context of big data and smart data and the ways that we are all constantly making more and more data about ourselves. And with the advent and widespread popularity of these technologies, which are gathering information about us all the time, the fact that it is possible for all of that data to be aggregated and analyzed and attempted to be used for predictive purposes, potentially, to try to determine people who are maybe now or in the future going to experience mental distress, mental disorders, or potentially try to enact a form of violence based upon a alleged mental disorder. And the problem becomes equating potentiality for violent acts or violence with mental illness because media have long played a role in perpetuating this myth that people with mental illnesses and mental disorders and who experience mental distress are more likely than the rest of us to behave in violent ways when we have the research that says that that isn't true. So when we had Donald Trump during his presidency saying things like, perhaps we can use data that people share on social media to try to predict when violent crimes are going to happen, that was really troubling. And not a lot of media attention was paid to that statement because for most of us, we were able to disregard it as too futuristic and almost like minority reportish with the belief that we can 
predict who will be violent and when and what their crime will be. And maybe we can arrest them and stop them before they ever act. It's this idea that technologies can be used to predict our behaviors in the domain of mental healthiness and mental illness. Whereas with other medical disorders, other medical illnesses beyond the psychological, we can have smart data. We can have data which allows us to predict when we are becoming ill or we might experience a relapse. One of the examples that we often talk about with digital health more broadly is diabetes and how we have really great predictive technologies, which are smartphone applications, which are so much easier to use and less invasive than it used to be even 10 or 20 years ago when you had to prick your finger and check your blood level perhaps all day long to see your glucose levels. But this idea, this false belief that we can similarly have predictive data in the realm of mental health and mental illness leads us to think sort of what Donald Trump suggested, which is that we can predict crime and violence, particularly from mentally ill persons, persons who are diagnosed or not yet diagnosed. And we're not at that point, but it is a dangerous imagined future to think that we can use technologies and big data to be able to make those predictions, especially because we are probably in the next few years going to see insurance companies requiring many of us to use these technologies because depression, anxiety have been shown to cause huge economic losses and insurance companies want to make sure that the companies who are paying for their services keep their costs down. So the idea is that if these tools and technologies can improve a lot of our mental healthiness, then yes, we will be asked to use them. But then what happens with the data after that? So my my overarching fear is that as we are increasingly required to use these technologies, we will lose control of data about ourselves and our mental healthiness. Now, that's not always necessarily a bad thing because if it is revealed that many of us are experiencing more levels of distress and anxiety and depression and on other mental disorders, whether they are diagnosed or subclinical, it can also destigmatize mental distress, which is, of course, a good thing. But we also want to still retain control over personal information, especially that related to our mental health, because it continues to be highly stigmatized. Yeah, there is, again, a lot of nuanced layers here. And I don't know, my intuition tells me that I'm, I do hold that fear as well, because there's just so much unknowns. And especially knowing that it's the profit motive that is driving most of these quote unquote advancements, that is what I have the most fear about, because it's not that we can't advance in ways that actually center care and our collective well-being, but it's just that there is that profit motive that is the primary thing driving these sorts of advancements right now. So as we look to the future, it's of course really important for us to work towards transforming the conditions that created our varied health crises to begin with. But even as we work to address the roots, we still need to rebuild stronger systems of support and work on community building that are more human-centered to be able to offer people the various forms of mental and physical and holistic health support that they need. So I know you mentioned that there are no easy answers as to like, what do we do now going forward? But what does it look like for you in your mind to build a human-centered form of care and network that might be rooted in community? 
I think a lot of the time, rather than prescribing a particular change that one person thinks will be a solution, I think that communities themselves can often come up with really great solutions. So that's one of the reasons why I hold back a bit in therapy tech from saying that there's one thing we should do. Of course, I think that devoting resources to training and recruiting more competent mental health care professionals can help us a lot by increasing the accessibility of mental health care services. But I'm also cognizant and recognize the fact that we're probably never going to see a total turn away from technological solutions. So I do want us to remember that care is a human ethic and perhaps we can have technologies which are useful for improving the spectrum of care that persons can believe. But if my work can just help a community or a person to recognize that there are others like them who are concerned about potential losses of that ethic of care, which is, again, a human ethic, then I think that my work really has done its job, which is to raise people's consciousness. When a woman cries like a flower Opens all her petals, pouring out the truth. The moon can't fly, and the universe decides not to move because she cries. No, this What is an impactful publication you follow or a book that you've read that's been really profound? Probably the most perspective-changing book that I've read recently would be Thich Nhat Hanh's Pieces Every Step, which reminds me that everything we do can be done mindfully. Largely based on my research, I've become very interested in meditation and mindfulness practice, and I, I absolutely love Thich Nhat Hanh's work. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? You know, I just have this belief that if the work that I do, whether it's research or teaching, even if it's one person or a single student who I can reach and somehow what I do, what I provide changes their thinking or causes them to have a realization that leads them to have a fulfilling life, to me, I feel like I have been successful. So just thinking about it in terms of changing one person's perspective, that that keeps me going. Mm. And what are some of your biggest sources of inspiration right now? So I recently moved to Texas after living in the Northeast for most of my life. And one of the things that I've realized is that nature and the plants here, they're all so different and so beautiful that I've realized that I've taken nature for granted for a lot of my life. And um, just assuming that I know about plants and everything that grows and being in a completely new climate and a new place and a new area of the country, seeing all of the new things that can grow here causes me to be more conscious about my environment. So that's been a really great change for me. Mm, really exciting. We are coming to a close, but Green Dreamer, you can learn more about Emma and her book, Therapy Tech, through her website, which is www.emmabedorehighland.com. And you can also follow her on Twitter at Emma Bedore Highland. Emma, thank you so much for sharing this time with me and sharing your wealth of knowledge and learnings. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? 
forming communities based upon wanting to address challenges that we see in our world today, and there are certainly many of them, is actually it should provide some solace and the idea that you are not alone. Other people feel the same way as you and that we can work together to create a better world. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To reciprocate support for our community powered show starting from just $2, you can head to greendreamer.com slash support. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on word of mouth so that our extensive archive of conversations can reach and inspire more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with friends and loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps so much and we are so grateful. The song featured in this episode is A Woman and the Universe by Lara Bello. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care and I will catch you soon in the next episode.